everyone and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, our podcast mini-series sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, CINSEL as we call ourselves, at the University of the Sunshine Coast and supported by Noosa Radio 101.3. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Once grand landscapes are gone, replaced by featureless ridges and mountainous piles of spoil, interrupted by man-made drainage lines and huge empty holes in the ground, streams above and below the ground are broken and contaminated. The air is filthy. These words sound like descriptions by economic historians of the coal mining areas of the English Midlands of the 19th century, or the Welsh Valleys, or Virginia or Western Pennsylvania in the United States of America, or the Ruhr Valley in Germany. Yes, it was obvious even back then that coal mining did seriously impact on both the physical and social environments and human health. But coal was, after all, the energy driver of the industrialization in each of these countries at that time. Mining brought wealth to industrialists and investors, job opportunities for those seeking work in that burgeoning sector, electricity to extensive national grids and power to politicians who exploited all of these factors. Damage to the natural landscapes and ill health related to the poor quality of the air in mining areas, let alone to the dangers of mining itself. And these were all regarded as the costs of progress. But the words I've just quoted are not by writers from the 19th century or economic historians reflecting back on the past but from the author of a quite remarkable contemporary book written by Dr. John Drynan and published just a few months ago in 2022. And he's writing not about industrial Britain, the USA or Germany a couple of centuries ago, but about the Hunter Valley in rural New South Wales as it is today in the 21st century. It's with well, utmost pleasure that I welcome John Drynan, agriculturalist, environmentalist, researcher, eminent educator and passionate advocate for the inclusive well-being of the beloved valley in which he's lived most of his life. Welcome, John. Thank you, Richard, and thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. I think that um, the two things that occurred to me, first of all, is that you I should have had you to write the introduction before the introduction. <laughs> and second, secondly, it's, it just reminded me about how little we have learnt when you, when you recite the, uh, the experiences of all those other places around the world where coal is wrought terrible destruction and yet we are still doing it even though at the same time we must acknowledge the benefits we've had from it and still have from it. Uh, yeah, it's not really so much a matter of knowing is it's a matter of power as you point out in your book that those who, who have vested interests really have the ability to be able to overcome the knowledge of the public as it were. Yes, yes indeed. Um, I mean, that's what's, that's what's happened in, uh, in relation to coal mining in the Hunter Valley. It's interesting that um, it doesn't matter which particular parties are in power, they all treat it exactly the same way. And I've actually charted, um, as you know, the, uh, the progress of uh, coal production in the valley against the uh, various premiers of New South Wales, and uh, they're, they're, all, they're all involved, they're all complicit. Um, and, you know, the, the obvious thing is that uh, the government is very much in a very, very cosy, comfortable relationship with the, with the coal companies. Right. Judith Brett wrote an absolutely marvellous essay a few, uh, two, about two years ago, two or maybe three years ago, called The Coal Curse. 
and she traces it very very well and uh, just the just how awfully uh, you know, you've got to be careful about the words that you actually use I mean I started sort of going down the path of um, the C words from you know having a comfortable relationship to a cosy relationship to a collaborative one you know you can keep on going and it's not very nice but at some point it becomes really truly dangerous and, and what has, that ha has happened is that the coal companies really dictate the terms and have been now for a long time right uh, I mean you cover an extraordinary amount in this book uh, 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 you embrace science and technology there's economics there's history politics ecology sociology and moral philosophy and you do all that in less than 250 pages what uh, what drove you to to actually write this and it's really passionate yes i must tell you richard that when i when i first started writing this book about 13 or 14 years ago oh and uh, then for various I, I got it about two chapters done and uh, i then got got distracted by other things that i was involved in at the time i was still back on the farm then and i was very much involved in a few community things and uh, anyway, then when I, when I moved up here to Bonnie Hills um, near Port Macquarie six years ago, I started again. And I, I, I started, of course, with the draft I'd written then. And I, at the same time, I sent it out to my youngest daughter and to another, another good friend. And I said, what do you think about this? And they came back with the same, uh, the same, same sentiment that I had already developed, which was, it's way too angry. You've got to get rid of that and start again. <laughs> And it was, it was just so angry, because I was so angry. I mean, it all goes back to the fact that I was, I lived in the Hunter Valley for much of my life. I was born there, it was a fifth generation um, product um, of the valley. And I, my, my great grandfather bought the land on which my, our farm um, sat back in 1856. So, you know, it was really deeply, you know, deeply in, my, in my, my body, soul, mind, the whole lot. And uh, initially, I didn't really, didn't really twig what was really going on with coal mining. It sounded like it was a good, good economic sort of a, an activity. But as time went on, from the 1970s, the growth of coal mining across the valley was just so huge that it got to the stage where I can't drive through it anymore without feeling physically sick. Wow. It is just horrendous. These enormous holes in the ground, these great, great piles or mountains of bare earth rock they just make me feel absolutely sick because i cannot see how we can ever recover anything like what we had before the beautiful the beautiful valley that was is no more and they're, they're open cut presumably open cut it, it's interesting richard the um the earliest stages of coal mining were all un were all underground and they occurred mainly in the lower hunter from singleton down to newcastle and Underground mining also is, is pretty awful on the environment, um, but uh, people in those days didn't understand as much as they do today. There were far less, uh, far less rigid uh, controls, and today's controls are not, not as rigid as they should be. And even though on the surface, the only thing you really notice with old coal mines is a few decayed buildings and you'll see subside, uh, depressions where the ground has, has collapsed, but uh, the only the main effect you see of it today is when water comes out of those old mines and it's saline and it's acid and right. it just kills the streams into which it flows. Right. But in the Upper Hunter, initially there was a bit of underground mining, but then uh, 
Well, I suppose it was really uh, in the 1970s, the coal companies realised just what a huge resource was sitting there. And of course the government thought this was great. And so they started bringing in bigger and bigger machinery and thought it was much cheaper to take to sculpt the land and, and, and expose the seams that way than to drill down to them and tunnel along, there, along the seams. So it was open-cut mining that's made and it's caused the devastation that uh, we see today and would not be anywhere near as obvious if it was underground. I mean, the images that spring to mind, uh, having been, uh, been brought up in England, actually spent some time in the mining areas in Nottinghamshire, uh, is uh, of, of people going down holes, as it were, and, and the whole village and towns, depending on the life of really a, uh, quite a number of people who were underground. But of course, open cut mining doesn't employ that many people, does it? No, no. This, this is one of the great. This is one of the great surfies, Richard. The mining, the mining industry, mining lobby, which, as you know, is an enormously powerful at federal level and the state level, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. That lobby would have it that you know they're a major employer and they're always going on about we're, we're creating jobs, 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 and it's echoed by the politicians. But in fact, there's a, in the overall workforce in Australia that's employed in mining and mining related businesses is less than 2% and it's getting smaller but in places like the Hunter Valley like in towns like Singleton and Musselbrook and there'd be, uh, there'd be some centres in, in Queensland the same the figure goes up much beyond that I think in the Hunter Valley it's probably of the order of 30% um, so those towns are very much dependent on, have become very dependent on coal mining So here we have a, an enormous conflict right between those of us who would argue that the days of, of um, carbon, essentially, the carbon economy, uh, is should be, and that's a moral decision, should be expired, as it were. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we're talking about the occupations of a whole lot of people, and in fact, the, the, the welfare of enormous numbers of people. They, they are indeed, Richard. Uh, and I, well, I've been taken by the... Uh, the approach that's been taken in other countries, I mean, one, one in particular in Spain, in the coal mining area of Asturias in Spain, they came to a compact between the um, coal companies, the government and the miners for what they called a just transition. I'm sure you'll be able to tell me what that is in Spanish, Richard, but um, I can't remember the exact, <laughs> the exact term. But I mean, I think that's what we have to, we have to understand is that we are, coal is going to disappear. There is no question about it. Um, and as it goes out, we have got to think about those coal miners and those coal communities and make sure that they are adequately provided for. Now, I believe that's entirely within our gift uh, because uh, there is no question that the, the, uh, there are enormous, enormous new business opportunities that are happen happening, um, mainly through the renewable revolution, um, that are, are going to lend themselves very, very nicely to those, those particular environments. I had the um, had the good fortune to go to the right the Adelaide Writers Festival um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was quite taken by the, the talk between uh, Ross Garno and uh, Simon Holmes Court. And I'd read um, um, Ross Garno's book, The Energy, what are the, the super energy superpower, or whatever it's called, making the point that. Uh, he, he he exposed a, a hidden thing there that, that hadn't really occurred to me before. People keep on beating on, going on about the hydrogen economy that's going to develop. 
Now they they sort of implied that we're going to ship lots of lots of hydrogen to other countries, particularly to places like Korea and and uh, Japan and maybe China. But as Ross pointed out, which is a pretty astute observation for an economist, hydrogen happens to be the smallest element. And being the smallest element, it's pretty easy, it finds it fairly easy to sneak out through other elements and molecules. So therefore it is very, very hard indeed to create a vessel that is actually going to contain the hydrogen gas before it goes, when it's being exported. The effect of that is that if we go to export all that hydrogen to, um, to those countries, we're going to magnify the cost of the hydrogen by two or three times. Therefore, we have another great opportunity here in Australia, which is to do the job of iron ore processing and aluminum smelting here on, on our land and then smelt and send the finished product away to these other countries. So there's lots and lots of opportunities that are just waiting for us to grab hold of them. And uh, I'm, a very, I'm a very much, uh, very much an optimist about that. I'm always reminded of, uh, of, of Donald Horn, Lucky Country, when we keep thinking about all the opportunities that we keep missing. And, and it seems to me that, that the coal is a perfect metaphor uh, of the fact that we continue to rely on either digging stuff out of the ground or, or growing stuff in the land or on the land, rather than saying, um, well, we're not a post-industrial country because we've never been industrial. I mean, what, what, what we miss out. And so we've got this situation where we're, we're, as a nation, depending on the one hand on primary industry and on the second on tertiary so-called industry, which is just shuffling money around one way or another. And we have this lacuna in the middle. Um, and, and so it's as if we don't understand opportunities. Uh, or if we do, we're, we're as Horn suggested, um, we're too, I don't know whether it's lazy or, or um, antipathic or whatever it is, but we don't seem to say, here's an opportunity, let's do it. That's exactly right. Um, we, we've, we've effectively hollowed out the, to the, the manufacturing sector to uh, mm. almost, um, almost nothing. Although I, I am encouraged that with the, that, um, there are companies now started to capitalise on the renewable revolution. Um, I think um, that um, you know there are going to be some, some, some great opportunities there that we ha- we haven't yet seen. And one, when you, as you were saying that, I'm reminded of the fact that um, I've been to numerous meetings talking talking about how manufacturing in Australia and how capitalising on our own inventions is we've done so very very poorly. And every time the politicians and others, other so-called wise men, trot out the um, excuse that we don't have the size of economy that enables us to be able to put up the venture capital required to, to do this. Well, that is changing. Um, and I'd, I'd, uh, I would use as, as evidence um, Mike Cannon-Brooks, Atlassian, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Twiggy Forest, mm-hmm. uh, Fortescue, people with vast amounts of money They've heard from uh, from from uh, from from our Australian mentality mind as well as uh, mining, um, who are starting to put money into doing these things onshore rather than doing them offshore. So I think I think there's going to I think there's opportunities there. I, I'm reminded of, of uh, something that happened to me a million years ago, and it is almost because I was an undergraduate student at the time uh, in England, and we had um, students from other countries that would come and spend a, a term with us. 
and I can remember having a conversation with a Dane. This was in the 1950s. And he said, uh, we've had a very interesting conversation in Denmark. I said, oh yes, you know, as if a country could have a conversation. But he said, no, um, we've got together under government encouragement, which has asked us the question, what do we do now? We used to be a pig farm. We no longer want to be a pig farm. Now what do we do? And they had this national discussion. And someone uh, or groups of people said, well, look, we've got people like Niels Bohr, who's a, an extraordinary physicist, um, and we know about solid state physics a bit. Why don't we go into electronics? And they did. So here was a country that went, uh, you know, talking about population and size and the amount of capital available. They just went from being a pig farm to an electronic center. And they've had that conversation again within the last few decades of saying, well, okay, the Koreans and the Japanese and the Chinese have taken over the electronics. Now what do we do? So they said, I know what, why don't we do wind turbines? And so Denmark is now the center, the world center of technology in turbine. Why can they do it with a population of whatever it is, five million or something, I guess, uh, with us with 26 million? And we don't seem to have that conversation even. And the conversation doesn't even start, does it? At the, at the no. levels where it needs to start. I mean, it goes back to, I mean, Denmark is, you know, one of the truly inspiring countries in, 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 this, in this regard. But I go back again to the, uh, this mantra of jobs, 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 which we hear again and again um, as, as the reason why we've got to have a coal mining industry in the Hunter Valley. You know, we've got to create the jobs. Otherwise, what, pe what are people going to do? These people seem to forget that there are all sorts of other poss possibilities with jobs. And I often cite Denmark, Taiwan, Japan, as three classic examples of countries that have no very little in the way of natural resources that can be mined, yet they have done brilliantly well by using the products of their mines. Now, we, we, have, we have this terrible um, anti-intellectual sort of flavour that, that permeates um, politics where we don't want to hear about things that might be coming out of our minds that somehow are somehow rather too challenging. And, and, and then you add to that the sort of the ideologies that, um, that I guess stem from that. I remember a meeting, at a meeting years ago when I was involved in um, R&D um, and uh, a meeting with the Federal Minister for Science. And we had around the table people from various um, R&D organisations around Australia and one of them put forward this um, wonderful um, development they, that they saw in relation to gene technology. Anyway, and, and he started on about how, you know, the, the limitation they really have is just having the funding to really move this thing along. Well, that Minister for Science, he was so quick on saying, well, don't you come to us asking for money? We do not do that sort of thing. It's up to the business, up to, business to do that. We are not in the process of funding the, develop, the ongoing development of these things. Well, that, that must have crucified many great ideas here in Australia because, yeah, yeah. OK, sure, sure it does mean taking a risk, but if you don't take risks and fail, you certainly will never ever have a success. Exactly right. Well, I mean, having lived in, uh, in the United States for, uh, for almost a decade, uh, well, I remain incredibly impressed by the expression. In, in Australia, we say, G'day, how are you going? In America, they say, hello, how are you doing? And that seems to me an extraordinarily insightful comment that says, that's right, in America, they do, they innovate 
and and you know having worked there it is true people come up with i've got this really good idea uh let's do it and and funding appears because that's the culture and and they, and they accept the fact that you you there are going to be plenty of failures i mean they have and they have bankruptcy laws that make it easy to go bankrupt on right. in the event that somebody does fall over and then you you put, pick yeah. yourself up and start all over again yeah. and so you end up yeah. with the sort of wonderful things that happen in silicon valley Mind you, something last last week wasn't so quite so wonderful, but uh, on the tech scene, it's pretty darn remarkable. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely absolutely true. One of the things that um, uh, struck me for for those who who um, are listening, John and I worked together many years ago um, at, at a an obscure little agricultural college called Hawkesbury Agricultural College, and what we were trying to explore. Uh, was what can we do about an agriculture that actually is doing in some ways an extraordinary amount of harm and that was harm to the biophysical environment it was also to rural communities and to in fact rural economies uh, because no matter how hard farmers worked and John was also a farmer as well as being an academic no matter how hard they worked as it were they could, their productivity increases their efficiency could not keep pace with the declines in their, their so-called terms of trade. In other words, the economic conditions under which they were operating. Uh, as a farmer, John, what did you bring, do you think, to that conversation um, that helped us really understand the, the situation of, of farming at that time? Well, I think, Richard, um, the thing that uh, it really got me going was... Um, as you know, I went through rural science at the University of New England, and a marvelous, a marvelous course that, in many ways, was holistic, in that it um, brought brought together soil, a good understanding of soils, plants, and animals, a little bit of ec- economics, but nowhere near enough, a little bit of sociology, but nowhere near enough, and I'd had the experience of um, farming during the beef recession uh, of the nineteen seventies the early, early 1970s, when beef prices collapsed to one-third of what they had been before. Wow. I had been uh, watching um, the uh, figures on, on beef, on cattle numbers in Australia and, and production of beef, and looking at the figures also on, on demand. And the two, two lines were demer- diverging enormously. And it made me think, what the heck's going to happen here? And sure enough, it collapsed. I'm not trying to put myself up as a pundit there, but it just drew my attention to the fact that if you really want to succeed in agriculture, you have got to think a lot more holistically and systemically than, um, than, we, than, we, than I had been taught to do. And so when you came along to uh, Hawkesbury and you started push, pushing us um, to think through these things even further, it just seemed to be just so obvious that we had to go down that particular line of understanding... I guess in, in modern day terms, we talk about the triple bottom line, you know, the environment, economy, society, uh, having to bring those, bring those things together. And if I can translate this now to what's happening in relation to um, the Hunter Valley, as, it, as coal, coal will eventually recede, is that I'm really concerned about the way the politicians at both local government, area, local government and state government levels are talking about we've got to create jobs, we've got to create jobs. If they go down that path, they're only thinking about the economy. I mean, the, 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 if they're going to really transform the hunter into a new 
the new, bright new future it could have. They've got to think of it in terms of rebuilding the environment, rebuilding or re- developing a new economy and rebuilding communities and right. people. They've got to bring those three things together. They, they've got to really think the way we tried to do at Hawkesbury to really get inside their heads that this is one, one great big system we've got to think about and have in our minds all at the same time. Those two little letters are incredibly important. The more um, I think about them, R-E, RE. I mean, I think it's really interesting and I'm moving slowly beyond sustainability now into the notion of renewability and regeneration um, so that the idea of a circular economy, the idea that we can actually create different forms of civilizations depend on not on sustainability, which has this implication that we can just keep doing what it is we're doing, but to actually exactly, as you say, a repair. There's another RE that says, if only we could learn to think about those things, and that would be, in our terms, systemic, wouldn't it? It would be the idea that that all of this is interacting in ways where it's not just a matter of keeping it going, but we have to be creative to, to create conditions where there will be continuing adaptation, renewal. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, this is something, if I go back to the hunter again, there is no way that's actually going to occur if it's, if it's left within the purview and responsibility of, of government departments because they think only according to their own, the, the ethos of their own particular silo and perish the thought that it was put in the hands of the Department of Planning because the Department <laughs> of Planning really should be renamed the Department for making sure that developments actually occur rather than really seriously thinking about whether they're good things or not. I mean, and another example there is that if you, you know, they talk in, in the mining game, they, they, they talk in terms of rehabilitation. You know, rehabilitation is not really a very, very good word for what actually has to happen, but if you actually read what, they, what the department says that means, it means simply reshaping, uh, essentially put, uh, putting some sort of a um, safety fence around the, um, around the big holes. Now those holes, as, as you know, Richard, are massive. You know, imagine, imagine a hole 880 hectares in area and maybe up to 300 metres deep. That's mind-boggling and they're going to be there for th- hundreds and hundreds of years, some of them for a thousand or more. Um, and they, they, they require, so you've got to protect that hole, people from that hole somehow or other, but also the, the voids, the great, the, sorry, the, the mountains of spoil have got to be shaped in such a way as to minimise the runoff. Um, and revegetate to try and reduce the amount of dust so as to to make sure they're safe. So in other words, all they're thinking about is safety. They're not talking about how they might actually be used. They're not, talk, they're not talking about how it might actually impinge on, on the economic development of the area in the future. It's just a, a single-minded thought. There's got to be somehow or other you've got to create a, an authority or a commission that has that holistic vision about where, where things must go. John, a half an hour has gone by. It's been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, I do hope that your book is as well read and well accepted as it deserves to be. All the best and thanks so much. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you as always and I thank you for giving me the time to talk about my book. <laughs> And thank you all for listening. I look forward to the next time we meet. Um, And this is Richard Borden signing off. Thank you. Good night.